This is Mind Bites, a series for Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. What did the hippocampus say during its retirement speech? Thanks for the memories. It's a neuroscientist joke. But it turns out that even good jokes are not really what makes most of us laugh. The neuroscientist Sophie Scott has chosen an unusual but intriguing specialism. She studies laughter. Sophie Scott, welcome to Mind Bites. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. The topic we're going to focus on is the meaning of laughter. Just to begin, is laughter universal amongst human beings? Yes, as far as we can see, every human culture, even cultures that might not use laughter very much because it seems impolite, recognise laughter even from people on cultures they've never seen before. More basically, what is it? It's weird. It's more like a different way of breathing than it is anything else. It just involves squeezing air out with these large contractions of the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm. So it's a very basic, very elemental way of making a sound. It's part of a set of nonverbal expressions of emotion, things like screams of fear or angry growls or yuck sounds. And they are more like animal calls than they are like speech. And they seem to be under an older evolutionary pathway for controlling vocalisations. But even within that, laughter is an extremely basic sound. So you can do a lot to the sounds of laughter and people will still hear laughs there because it's basically what you're responding to is the amplitude changes that just give from each of those squeezes, all those ha, ha, ha. That's how you're hearing the laughter. That's the mechanical and auditory elements of laughter. But for me, laughter is pleasurable. There's something, there has to be something physiological beyond the contraction of my muscles and so on. There are a number of biochemical changes in your body when you laugh. So the first is that you get an increased uptake of the body's naturally circulating endorphins, which are your painkillers, the body's painkillers. That doesn't seem to be specific to laughter. You get that from exercise of any kind. And although you're not doing a huge amount of work when you laugh, you are using your ribcage in quite a different way. You make much bigger movements with your ribcage when you're laughing than you do normally. And that does seem to give you quite a, a sort of an endorphin buzz. More specifically linked to laughter, you also get a decrease in adrenaline and over a longer time scale, a decrease in cortisol levels. So you are relaxed. You're picking up those measures of the person being less stressed. I think another reason why it feels pleasurable is probably the context in which you're doing it, which is it largely is something that exists in social interaction. So you're also getting the kind of the buzz from a positive social environment. And what about animals? Do they have something which is equivalent to laughter or do they have the same thing as us? They seem to have, certainly within mammals, something which is functionally or operationally very similar to laughter. So laughter is quite well described in apes, so chimpanzees, gorillas and orangutans, and it's pretty easy with them because it looks and it sounds like laughter. We only laugh on exhale, we ha, ha, ha. Chimpanzees laugh breathing in and out, so they kind of go <laughs> like that, but it still looks very similar, it's very recognisably laughter. More surprisingly, it has been described in rats, and rats were noted to make a particular sound. This is Jan Panksepp's work. That he noticed that rats made a particular vocal behaviour when they were playing, and they wanted to know, is that laughter? So they started tickling the rats, and they found that they made the same chirping noise when they were being tickled. So that doesn't sound like laughter, but it's functionally occurring in the same context. And one of the things that is interesting across chimpanzees and humans and rats is that you first see this laughter behaviour when it emerges essentially in infancy in interactions with caregivers, normally you know, parents. And very often that is tickling. Now, you can't tickle yourself 
it requires somebody else being there. So the first kind of emergence of laughter is something that you see in interactions. And then it stays that way for pretty much the rest of your life. Although we think it's about humour and jokes, laughter is actually mostly to do with something that occurs in social settings. From what you're saying, this makes laughter seem quite a basic element of human emotion, human social interaction. It is. I mean, at one level, it has been described as potentially being one of the basic emotions. So they form part of this older evolutionary palette of possible emotions that you can experience by no means all of them. And I think it is also basic in that a lot of our early interactions involve it. And it seems to run as a very strong core behaviour throughout infancy and childhood and on into adulthood. So, for example, you first see laughter emerging in interactions between babies and their caregivers. And there's actually quite interesting evidence that even before a baby is one year old, so well before they're verbal, they are pretty well up on what laughter does. They'll do things to try and make their parents laugh. They're using their laughter in a relatively nuanced way as a communicative tool. And then when they start playing with other children, laughter is a huge element of that. And Panksepp, who works with rats, says that at its heart, laughter is an invitation to play. And it kind of makes play distinctly playful. You're saying, I'm not going to hurt you, this isn't serious, there's no aggression here, I'm not going to take something away from you, because this is play. And you're sort of marking it that way. And there's a number of different ways you do this. It's play face, other animals like dogs put their feet out in front of them. And across the board you also find laughter. So it's a kind of signal that this is a safe way of interacting with somebody. It seems to be. So I can remember walking across a playground in uh, Lancashire a couple of years ago. Uh, there were two boys, both running for the same cricket ball. And one of them was much, much bigger than the other. They turned out to be brothers. And the bigger boy was just wailing on the smaller boy to stop him from getting to the cricket ball. And they were both just screaming with laughter. So what could simply have been aggression, like, we both want this, I'm going to stop you because I'm bigger and I want it, became fun because they were both laughing. And of course, it was only fun because they were both laughing. If the younger boy had been crying, it would not have been at all fun. But it was the laughter that was kind of the sign that this is fine, this behaviour is fine. And that thing about laughter being contagious, that seems to be a core element of it. Is that something which you find everywhere with human beings, that when one person laughs, another one laughs? Robert Provine in the US has done a lot of work into the behavioural, psychological aspects of laughter and he's argued that it does seem to have this contagious quality wherever you find it. Of course, it certainly does seem to be something that we learn to do. So babies don't laugh contagiously. When the baby laughs, the parents will laugh, but essentially they're training the baby up and we continue learning to do that you know when we're laughing when we play as I say it's always got this social interaction you're finding with other people so you're sort of learning about it as you do it and it's becoming more complex in how you use it emotional expressions have to be contagious at some level otherwise they're not your very useful emotional expressions if I start going you know you should feel some sense of disgust because that's the job of that emotion what you don't do is start joining in because it's an emotionally contagious signal but it's not behaviourally contagious so not everything that we do in this way has these behaviourally contagious elements yawning for example is not particularly emotional but it's highly behaviourally contagious what Provine's shown is even for these behaviourally contagious things like laughter and yawning it's still modulated by social context so you are much more likely to catch a laugh or catch a yawn from someone you know than someone you don't know so big elements of that contagion is simply showing affiliation Well, this is all very interesting, but what does it reveal about the mind specifically? 
So one of the things that's very interesting about laughter is that at one level it is immensely basic. It's an extremely simple sound. It's just the air is just being squeezed out of you. But the way that we seem to process it as a signal is enormously complex. So we see even if people haven't been told to do anything with the sounds, they're just playing them laughs in the scanner. When people hear, for example, an obviously fake laugh compared to other sounds or real laughter, spontaneous laughter, we get activation in the brain associated with people trying to work out why that person's laughing. Now, you're just lying in the scanner, you're hearing a variety of different sounds, you haven't been told to do anything with any of them. Nonetheless, when you hear somebody going, <laughs> you are trying to work out why. And I think that's because in the wider environment, it is very important to understand why people are laughing because we use laughter in an enormously complex way in interactions. So if you look at conversations, which is where you find most laughter, Laughter is actually coordinated immensely carefully. So people laugh at the ends of sentences, whether or not they're talking or signing. So, of course, in sign language, you could laugh all the way through if you wanted to. You're not having to do something with your mouth. But people don't. They laugh at the sentences at the end and they laugh together. And, in fact, very often the person who laughs most, looking at conversation, is the person who's talking. It's not the case that most laughter is reactive. It's part of the communicative act so we've got this very very well coordinated behavior which at some level is intentional you are choosing to do it it's not the same as the sort of laughter you find when people cannot stop laughing because you can't coordinate that that just starts and then it just has to happen so you've got this very very well coordinated use of a non-verbal emotional expression really carefully interleaved with human speech and then within that we're doing a lot of very complex work so we're not hardly ever laughing at jokes. Most of the time, in fact, you're laughing affiliatively because you know somebody. You're showing that you like them. You laugh to show that you agree with them or you're looking for agreement. You laugh to show that you understand somebody. You laugh to show that you just understand the whole context of us doing this together, you know, your whole kind of affiliative relationship. So it's not just a straightforward, you hear something humorous, you start laughing. It's much more kind of intentional, communicative and to do with kind of establishing, maintaining and regulating emotions within that interaction. That reason why there's a sense in which they intend something by it, but at the same time, presumably, as with much behaviour, you can give off a message that's unintentional. Yes, that's one of the other big elements with laughter that you're always trying to work out because it's easy to say, oh, it's sort of social and it's bonding and that sounds very nice. But as soon as something is social and bonding and affiliative, you by definition have to be excluding somebody from it. It doesn't mean anything if everybody's included in it. So one of the things that I suspect we are always trying to work out is actually where do we stand in relation to that laughter? Am I being included in it? Am I being excluded from it? Am I being laughed at? So a couple of years ago, I was walking across the Ipswich railway station with my son and my partner, and I felt a tap on my shoulder, and I looked up and there wasn't anybody there, and then I heard laughter, and I looked the other way, and there were some teenage boys laughing at me, because you can understand this is obviously very funny. They tapped me on one shoulder, they'd sort of reached around behind me, so that wasn't where they were. Now, it was really interesting, because I was really like irritated by this immediately, I thought, oh, goodness, and... 
it wasn't that I'd seen the teenage boys and thought, you know, one day we'll all be friends. And I hadn't gone to Ipswich Railway Station to meet men. I had no expectation of a relationship with them. But as soon as they showed, I was so excluded from their group that they would laugh at me. It was awful. It was really strange. And the other thing that was strange was that their laughter wasn't evil laughter. You know, they weren't going, ha. Their laughter within their group was, of course, everything laughter should be within a group. It was warm and affiliative and friendly. But there was no question I wasn't included in it. So... From that example and also from what you were saying about fMRI scans and how people look for a meaning of false laughter, are you suggesting maybe that when somebody laughs, mentally that kind of triggers quite an active process of interpretation? We, we are desperate to find out why they're laughing to see whether we're in the group or out of the group. I think that's exactly what's happening. I don't think laughter is ever neutral. This is highly automatic. I don't think you set out to make these decisions, but as soon as it's occurring, you are trying to work out all these things. Am I in it? Am I out of it? Is it at me? If I'm in the group, what does it mean? You know, it's it's all phenomenally complex and highly nuanced. And we are social animals. The important stuff on our horizons are other human beings and our social relationships with them. And laughter is incredibly subtle index of those factors who chooses to laugh with you who chooses to laugh at you (laughs) means huge things for you and it's you know we've probably all been in the situation where you've been trying to maybe renegotiate that relationship that seemed to be all my years as a teenager was trying to find out where I was in relation to groups and um, am I being excluded am I in all of it being really based around laughter so it's part of what we would consider to be fairly normal but absolutely essential social understanding of situations involves that kind of interpretation I'm intrigued whether there are people who don't ever laugh and what that does to them. Well, it's a really good question because you do meet people who say that. Several times when I've done talks about laughter, somebody's come up afterwards and said things like, something along the lines of, I find things funny and, and I never laugh. And they say so with a completely straight face and I likely believe them. So we have been trying to look at that in more detail. We've created a laughter questionnaire really trying to ask questions around how people vary in their use or understanding of laughter. When we kind of try to collapse the data down onto underlying dimensions that seem to explain how people vary, we find three factors. And the first one is something along the lines of, I don't laugh, versus the opposite, which seems to be, I laugh a lot. And then there's another factor, which is people vary in how much they like laughter. Some people like laughter more and they consider it to be a good thing. And that seems to be independent of how much you laugh. And then the third factor is understanding other people's laughter or not understanding it. So you've kind of got these variations along which people do seem to independently vary. But the main one that comes out is this one about not laughing. So I'm very interested in that. What does this then mean for the interactions that they're having? If we use laughter primarily for making and maintaining social bonds in a really transient way, what does it mean if you can't use that? also developmentally from what you said because it's so important in play so it is really interesting with rats that rats who are tickled more when they are babies laugh more when they're tickled as adults so we know from the rats that it's certainly a behavior you can potentiate and it would be very interesting to know what that would mean in the developing child and we are starting to find ways of asking more questions about this So certainly if you ask children, does this laugh sound like someone who's helpless with laughter or is this laugh like faked in some way, five-year-olds just can't do it. And as you get older, you get better at distinguishing the two. But actually, you don't peak in your performance till your 30s. 
you're learning about laughter throughout your entire early adult life. You make the big changes when you're a child, but actually you don't stop improving, probably because it's something you can only learn about in these social interactions. And that leaves tremendous scope for things that might be influencing all the other stuff that can happen to you in those stages on your ability to understand and use the signal. Now, if laughter is universally done, but it has different meanings in different contexts, what does that mean when you laugh in a different culture? Is it that people misinterpret you, or is there still some common element which will allow for a communication, if, even with misunderstandings? I think you can find certain things where you will see commonalities, so children playing looks just pretty much the same wherever you are babies being tickled adults being tickled if you'll let them it looks very similar but you do also find these sometimes quite jarring cultural differences so I met somebody recently who was British worked in the UK and then spent some time working in Russia and had found that he was definitely trying to laugh in a way that most of his Russian colleagues would not in the workplace Perhaps we tolerate a slightly different frequency of laughter in the workplace in the UK that's not tolerated there. But you can find extreme examples. So in Japan, laughter is considered frequently or somewhat impolite. So it's not that Japanese people don't laugh, but there would be a lot of situations where that would not be appropriate. So you would not find laughter being used in the workplace. And in other Eastern countries, you do also find laughter being used in situations where people are dealing with very bad news. So I met somebody who'd worked in a bank in the Philippines and he had to ring his boss, who's a European working in the Philippines, he had to tell his boss that he'd made a bad deal and lost a lot of money. And his colleague took him to one side and said, when you tell him he will laugh, don't think that this means it's okay. It's actually a sign of how seriously he's taking this very bad news. So respect it for that. And that's not an unusual use of laughter. Now, to our ears, that seems quite surprising. But that's what you find with humans. Even if emotions are basic emotions, we still take them off and can use them in very complex ways and very culturally variable ways. We've been talking about laughter, and it's obviously a fascinating topic. It's a very basic part of our psyche. In philosophy, it's not a major topic for most philosophers, And I wonder why that is. It's the same in sciences. So if I go onto like a web of science database and I put in emotion, expression of fear, I get back about 4,000 papers. And if I put in emotion, expression, laughter, I get back 145 papers and about five of those by me. On one hand, there is a sense that it's not an important emotion like fear and anger and disgust. When we talk about emotions in psychology and neuroscience would largely mean entirely negative emotions. So there's, I think that's been a strong factor. I think also it just seems really stupid and trivial. And I think that might speak to an older tradition whereby there was that period in medieval times when you'd find people arguing about whether or not Jesus ever laughed or trying to find evidence that he had not laughed, very much a view that Jesus would not have been laughing. Because it's somehow not civilised and sensible and adult behaviour, it's not serious, it's not cerebral. And I think that's infected a lot of our approach to it. So it just seems not a proper thing for science sometimes. So what has science and philosophy lost by ignoring laughter? Well, we've lost, actually, a tool for looking at how people interact and how people regulate emotions in interactions because we clearly don't just sort of emit laughter at one another. We use it in this very complex, nuanced way. And, in fact, if you're in a relationship with somebody, the more likely you are, the better you are at using laughter to deal with stressful situations. It seems to be actually an index of the strength of that relationship. So it's not that everything's built around laughter, but actually... Certain things have to be in place for you to be able to use laughter. That actually makes it 
a very interesting behaviour to look at. So in the same way, Pankseps argued that play is like a default state for children. If they're not asleep or being made to do something else, they will play. And that makes it such a default behaviour that looking at what happens when it goes wrong actually tells you a lot. And I think the same is true of laughter. It's actually such a commonplace, socially existing emotional expression. It's actually very interesting to ask about what happens when it goes wrong, why is it going wrong, and actually using laughter as an index for asking bigger questions about how someone's emotional state can affect their interactions. Sophie Scott, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mind Bites was made in association with the Meaning for the Brain and Meaning for the Person project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. For further information about the project, go to www.nicholasshea.co.uk. That's Shea, S-H-E-A. For more Philosophy Bites and how to support us, please go to www.philosophybites.com. Mm-hmm.